You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome back for week five of our brand new sermon series that we're using to kick off the month of January entitled Miraculous. Miraculous. If this is your first time here with us or the first time tuning in online, welcome. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing in the, as part of this conversation is asking a question in terms of what expectations can we have of divine intervention? What expectations or what can I anticipate from God whenever I pray for things like healing, like provision, like guidance, like help? Or, in the case of the conversation we're going to have today, what expectations can I have of God if I pray for protection? Two weeks ago, From this very spot, uh, I stood up and started that sermon by saying that uh, we were talking about healing, the the request for healing. And I mentioned that that sermon will go down as one of the hardest sermons I've had to preach in the last couple of years. You're going to find out really, really quickly why this one was a really close second. Let's jump in. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along here today, uh, again, we're going to be camped out in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Or if you're watching this online you want to grab a Bible, feel free to hit pause and locate one. Today, uh, we're camped out particularly in a passage of Scripture that scholars uh, commonly categorize as what's called a theophany. A theophany. What's a theophany? A theophany is an instance in the Old Testament, so this is before Jesus was born, whereby Jesus showed up in bodily form to intervene in the situation in some way. Some examples include Genesis chapter 3. During the day's cool evening breeze, they heard a sound of the Lord God walking, physically walking in the garden. Another instance comes in Genesis chapter 32, whereby we are told that Jacob is camped out in the middle of the desert one night, and he gets into a wrestling match with some random divine God-like person. Uh, which is one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. One where I feel like I need more context. Like, how did they go from just sort of meeting up to fighting? Was there a sort of sandal insult? Like, what happened that sort of led us to this place? They wrestle all night, and then when Jacob gets free, he renames the place Peniel because I've seen God face to face, he says. And, no spoiler, Another such occurrence that scholars typically categorize as a theophany is, you guessed it, Daniel chapter 3. This really powerful story whereby these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down. They refuse to worship. They refuse to idolize this tyrannical and narcissistic ruler. And as a result, this ruler has them thrown into a blazing furnace. However, to everyone's surprise, while they're in there, someone peeks in this uh, furnace and sees not three people, but four. And this is where scholars say this is a theophany. This is Jesus showing up in an embodied form to protect and defend these three men from the flames. What does the story say? They make it out unscathed and unsinged. 
Put simply, here in Daniel chapter 3, we are encountering a really powerful display of God miraculously and supernaturally protecting his children. Now, additionally, what happens whenever you keep reading in the book of Daniel and you stumble across more stories like this. So for example, if you fast forward just three chapters, you get to Daniel chapter six, we run into yet another instance, another example whereby people, when faced with the predicament of bowing down to a tyrannical ruler or staying faithful to God, choose the latter, and as a result, gets thrown into a lion's den. This is the famous Daniel in the lion's den story. But what happens yet again? The mouths of the lions were clothed. Closed, not clothed, that would be weird. I don't know what kind of clothing you would put on top of a mouth. But what happens to Daniel? He makes it out safely. When I read these stories, so full transparency, this is Kyle speaking. When I read these stories personally in my own faith, I want to believe that God always shows up like this when I'm in danger. I read these stories and I want to believe that I have a God who will always protect me from danger, will always protect me from harm. Anytime and every time there is something that could do something destructive to me, someone could do something destructive towards me, God's going to show up just like God did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and keep me safe. That's what I want to believe. The problem is it doesn't take into full account the other data points we are aware of. For example, while God did show up on behalf of the persecuted here in this story, what about all the other times throughout church history where God did not show up and provide physical protection from those who were being persecuted? Examples like Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is stoned for his unwillingness to do what the religious leaders are calling him to do, and he stays faithful to being a follower of Jesus. It doesn't take into account uh, the church history that teaches us that 10 out of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus went on to be executed themselves, many of which by way of crucifixion, just like their Lord. This is a picture that artists have put together uh, to sort of display Peter's uh, crucifixion. He said, I'm unworthy to be crucified in the same way, and so you're going to have to do it upside down, Peter said. And so this, it doesn't account for uh, the fact that these followers who followed most closely to Jesus, this was their plight. This is where their story eventually wound up. It also doesn't account for the fact that, let's, let's put sort of history aside, it doesn't account for the fact that today, right this very moment, 13 Christians are executed every single day because of their desire to follow Jesus. This is a map that shows the most dangerous places to be an openly professing Christian in our world. And every single day, 13 Christians per day are executed in countries like North Korea or Pakistan, Somalia, Libya, just to name a few. It's not only doesn't take that belief, that desire to believe that God will always protect me from physical harm, doesn't take into account all of these stories, and it also doesn't take into account your stories. I'm willing to bet if we took the time we went around, every single one of us have got stories. Stories of people that we know, people that we love, who weren't protected from a drunk driver, or a miscarriage, or abuse, or worse. Did I mention this is gonna be a hard conversation? I think I did, yeah. Um, 
Today, friends, uh, full transparency, we're wading into the deep end of the pool, okay? We're venturing out to the place of the limits of what we can know and fully understand. And what I do in those moments uh, is whenever I find myself in these particular conversations on faith, when I find myself wrestling with these particular questions around, okay, well, what do I do when it feels like there's some stories that say, God, you act in this way, but then there's also a whole bunch of evidence that point to the contrary. What do I do with all that? The very first thing that I do in my own faith life is when I find myself in that place, I zoom out. I zoom out. So here in this particular story for today, in Daniel chapter 3, we have a very particular story of how Jesus showed up, intervened, and protected these children. But this is not the only story. This is not the only opportunity Jesus had during his whole life and ministry to do so. And so it's important that when we look at these particular instances, we also zoom out and take into account the larger context, the rest of the stories where Jesus was afforded the same opportunity. And what we find is that when we zoom out, we not only need to ask the question of, well, did Jesus, can Jesus protect us when we're in danger? But there's another question that sort of bubbles to the surface. The more you look at Jesus' life, the more you sort of track with his life and his ministry, which is another question of how often did Jesus even seek protection for himself? Let's go to the story of his death. As we're moving closer and closer and closer to the crucifixion. It's, I've been following Jesus now for well over 15 years, and this story is still ridiculously infuriating to me. It's infuriating to watch the various accusations and things made of Jesus, and at no point does he put a stop to it. Take, for example, the scene in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. We see in Matthew chapter 26, uh, where they are, uh, Judas has just betrayed Jesus. The soldiers have now shown up to arrest Jesus. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, whips out a sword that he got from somewhere, and he tries to protect Jesus. I resonate a lot with Peter. Impulsive, trying to do the right thing, doesn't always think it through. Jumps in, slashes some dude's ear off, and Jesus stops him. Doesn't allow it to go any further. Doesn't receive Peter's protection. And then the next scene, we find Jesus in this courtroom filled with religious leaders who are trying desperately to get this man killed. And so they are heaping insult after insult, unfounded uh, accusation after unfounded accusation. And in response to all of that, what does Jesus say? Nothing. Not a peep. And then in the next scene, when we find Jesus dying, bleeding, and suffocating on a cross, and people are walking by, mocking him and ridiculing him, saying things like, he saved others, but (laughs) can't even save himself. What does Jesus say? What does he do in response to these? He dies. God dies. And I think it was in the sort of walking through this story again this week that reminded me, oh yeah, this is the story of the gospel, isn't it? At the core, at the core, 
This is the story that the Christian gospel tells. That yes, God does show up and perform some miracles every once in a while and does some act of radical provision or protection or healing or something, but the larger, predominant, overarching story of the gospel is that you are here worshiping a God, learning about a God, studying a God, and following a God who more often than not didn't protect from suffering but chose to suffer with us, chose to suffer for us. And now we're coming back to, again, what lies at the core of our faith, at the very core of the Christian faith is a paradox. In fact, it's not just one paradox. There's a whole multitude of paradox. Like our whole faith is founded on paradox, like if you want to find life, it comes through death. If you want to be forgiven, you have to do what? You have to forgive. There's this repetition of paradox that Jesus preaches and that he enacts. And yet again, here in this moment, we encounter another one. That's the route, the path to eternal protection. The protection that our souls long for, that creation longs for, that we are so desperately longing for. There's no way to that eternal protection but through pain. There is no other path, Jesus says. Through his message, through his life, there was no other option but through pain. And so what that means for us, his followers, well, the author of Psalm 23, I think, said it perfectly. It said that if you're going to believe in this God, if you're going to worship this God, just know this, that this God will not pluck you out of the valley of the shadow of death. This is a God who joins you in it so that he can take your hand and lead you out. And I'll never forget the first time that I was forced to come to terms with that belief, that realization that this is who God is and this is how God operates. It was 2007. In 2007, I was a high schooler and uh, I was brand new to faith. I was two years into following Jesus. I was still sort of learning uh, sort of the foundations of what it meant to be a Christian and to call myself a Christian. And another really important thing to know about me and my story is that I belong to a military family. So my brother's in the military, my dad was in the military, his dad was in the military, my uncle was in the military, everyone was in the military. And so as a result of that, we were at a state, we were stationed in a military town. And so in these early days of me following Jesus and participating in the life of the church, one of the things that our church did is we paired up with a nonprofit in the area, and specifically the job uh, of this nonprofit was to come alongside and love and support families who had a missing soldier in combat. And so our church tried really hard to come alongside those families too. And one of the sort of uh, ways that all of us could participate is we would pray. We would pray for these folks, uh, and we would pray for them by name. Some of these were dads, some of these were husbands, some of these were sons uh, who were missing. And I will never, ever, ever forget the experience of having prayed for someone by name, by face, for weeks, only to receive the news that they were not coming home.
And about a month later, I got a new card for a new person to pray for, and guess what? It happened again. And I was in a church service like this on a Sunday. I left, and I went for a really long walk, and it's probably the most visibly and tangibly angry I've ever been. Because quite frankly, I was not only mad and confused, but I was terrified. I don't understand. We sing all the time about how strong you are. We sing all the time. We just got done singing a bunch of songs about how powerful you are and how you, you come and you defend and you show up and you rescue us. Where are you at? Where were you on these? Did we just not pray hard enough? Did we not get enough people rallied around to pray for this particular person? I'm like, what gives? And some of you know all too well what that experience is like. You've been at the crossroads of your own faith and personal experience before. And you know that at that crossroad, you have three options. Number one, you can double down. You can sort of figure out a way to manufacture or sort of rewrite the event in question so as to preserve that original belief you had about God. Or when other people tell you their stories that complexifies or challenges your long-held beliefs about God, you can gaslight them, you can minimize what they're saying, you can dismiss what they're saying, or you can provide our Christian favorite explanations. Well, again, yeah, maybe you just didn't, you forgot to pray. Did you pray today? Did you pray every day for that particular person? Oh, you missed a day. Maybe that was the explanation. You can double down, practice a sort of form of spiritual denial in order to protect your preconceived notions of who this Jesus is. You can do that, that's option one. Option two is you can walk away. Sadly, I have watched a number of people exercise this option. I don't understand why God wouldn't answer this prayer or protect this person. I don't. The only conclusion I can reach is either God doesn't care or God doesn't exist. Either way, I'm out. And I don't judge those people. I'm just filled with deep, deep sadness. And the third option when you reach this place in your life, if you haven't reached one yet, you will, where God does not intervene the way you thought, or let's just be really honest, did not intervene the way you prefer. The third option is starting now, you can begin to test your long-held beliefs against the real world. When I was 17, 18, and test my beliefs on the real world. They're theoretical. I got them in a church. I, I got them in like a nice safe laboratory where there weren't these complex people with complex situations that I had to say, I wonder if this is actually true or not. I just sort of said, well, I don't know. I'm just not gonna, I'm just gonna not gonna look at all that like stuff out in the world and I'm just gonna, not, I'm gonna pretend I don't hear about it because it's gonna sort of mess with my house of cards that I have perfectly crafted uh, for myself. At some point in your faith journey, you're going to have to test what you believe on the world as it 
actually is, not the manufactured fantasy world that we prefer because it already matches what we believe to be true. But two years after that whole prayer incident, I had yet another opportunity to exercise that third option when the pastor of that church, the pastor who championed this ministry, the pastor who mentored me and shepherded me, got up on stage and shared that that week his mom was killed by a drunk driver. And he said something at the close of that worship service that I will never forget, changed me forever. He said, I don't find myself mad at God for not protecting my mom. Instead, I'm baffled by the empathy and the tenderness that I feel from Jesus right now. And furthermore, the other thing that has happened to me in these last 24 hours is I have never, I repeat, never been more confident in the resurrection of the dead than I am right now. When he said that, I realized something about myself. I realized that up until that point, I had always thought of God's protection like this. I had always thought of God's protection like these hands that are always surrounding me, always keeping me safe. That if I can just, if I just pray enough, like if I just stay faithful, if I just make sure I'm at church once a month, if I'm just like, if I'm here enough and I'm doing the Christian thing enough, I'll be protected from harm. I'll be protected from danger. Nothing will kind of sort of penetrate my armor and really harm me in a really serious way. Unless God sort of cracks it open a little bit to let a little bit of suffering in to teach me something. I no longer think of God's protection in this way any longer. Instead, when I think of God's protection, when I think of the type of protection that I believe in, when I think of the type of hands that God uses to protect us, I no longer think of these, but these. I see now pierced hands, broken hands, wounded hands, hands that have been through it, hands that could tell some stories, hands that can say to mine that I feel what you feel and I know how hard and how broken, how awful this is. Hands that take mine. Invite me to follow. Invite me to trust. Invite me to believe again that this isn't it. So I'll close here. Please, before you leave here today, um, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. In no way does setting out on that third option lead you to this wonderful, expansive space where all your questions get answered and you get all the certainty restored to your theologically belief system? 
No. Even now, when I look back upon my own story, I can still see several examples. I can see so much evidence of moments where I prayed, I begged, and I pleaded for God to protect me. And it didn't happen. And, not or, and, I can also tell you story after story of where something way worse should have happened to me. Something way more painful, something way more devastating in my life should have happened to me. And it didn't. And I don't know why. Here is what I know. Here is all that I know. They're returning back to our story once more in Daniel chapter 3. What I know is that the most powerful part of this story, the most important part of our story for today, actually is not the moment where Jesus shows up in the fiery furnace and protects the three men from harm, as cool as that was for us pyromaniacs. No, the most important part of this story came in four easy, simple words. But if he doesn't, the men said. Even if he doesn't, the men said. I love this rawness. I love this honesty. I love this transparency. They're saying what everyone in this room is thinking. They're saying, they're confessing out loud. Yes, if you're asking me what I prefer, yes. I prefer a God who's going to keep me safe. I prefer a God who's going to protect me from you. I prefer a God who will rescue me from danger every single time. But even if he doesn't, I've come too far. I've seen too much to stop believing now to stop hoping in him now. In this way, they're saying something not too dissimilar from what we see Job say in Job chapter 15, verse 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Which is also not too dissimilar from Jesus, the one that you're following, the one that you and I worship, who in the garden very honestly says, Father, if there's another way, if there's another path that doesn't have to look like this, that doesn't require this of me, like, please, like, please, like, we, can we do that one? But if not, not what I want, but what you want. You see, friends, what I know, hmm, what I'm choosing to trust is I'm choosing to trust in the one who, no matter what comes my way, promises he'll never let me face it alone. I'm choosing to trust in the one who promises that there won't be a single ounce of my pain and suffering that will go unredeemed. I'm choosing to trust in the one who promised that he would not allow any of our lives to end without meaning something. 
I don't know about you, but I'm choosing to follow in the footsteps of those who've gone before us, and I'm choosing to trust in the one who whispers into the depths of your soul when the world around you is on fire. Fear not, because I will not allow the worst thing to be the last thing. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.